0: Welcome to another episode of the Black Perspective Podcast. I'm your host, Shock of the Guard. The first subject we're going to tackle today is DJ Squaringer gets cut by the Redskins. The first clip you're going to hear is DJ Squaringer himself giving his take on the whole situation. And then I'll come back with my commentary. Asked him
1: why he didn't give me an explanation. So um, I guess, you know, it was just because
0: of the media. Thought we had an understanding the last time we met. Uh, But, you know. Obviously, that wasn't the case, and, um, you know, uh, that release, man, so that's, that's, that's the, um, the last of that. I have a lot of stuff, you know, I could say, you know, in a negative way, uh, in a negative approach, or, you know, things that wasn't handled professionally, but, um, you know, I'm gonna keep it professional, you know, um, and, 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 uh, you know, that's, and and be a pro about mine, man, you know, because, uh. Uh, that's the only way I know how to be a pro and keep it moving forward. And um, if, if they, you know, if, I, if they release me, man, if that's what feels the best thing for the Redskins, man, then um, it's the best thing for me too. So DJ Scranger was cut by the Redskins after he criticized the defensive coordinator. Um, this should be a lesson to any black athletes, any actors, anybody in the black community that's making a lot of bread. You know serving a white man, entertaining a white man. What you got to understand is you pay to entertain. You're not paid to get your personal opinion. You're not paid to disagree with the coach or with the play calls or anything like that. You pay to be a boy to entertain these folks. And um, that's your job, entertainment. Anything else is considered being subordinate or insubordinate, I should say, and it goes against the rules of white supremacy. Now, if you understand that, then you can be successful but if you want to be you know an entertainer and a nigga too when i i mean n-i-g-g-a then you're gonna have a problem you ain't gonna make no money and they're gonna get you, rid of you they're gonna label you a troublemaker and a problem um in a locker room or on the field or dealing with coaches trust me on that and that's my take on dj you're getting cut and uh sometimes you just got to shut up and play ball i mean if you want to be Making that bread. You get what I'm saying? Now, on to the next subject in the podcast. What you're about to hear is an interview done by Don Lemon with a black doctor who's trying to become a member of a white rifle club. Imagine that. And um, it's pretty interesting. Take a listen, and I'll give my commentary.
2: I'll tell you the story of dr melvin brown a respected african-american emergency room physician in charleston south carolina dr brown is also a military veteran this fall he applied for membership in the all-white charleston rifle club his membership bid sponsored by white friends members vote by dropping marbles in small boxes a white marble means a yes vote black marble means no and dr brown the only black applicant got 11 black marbles in his box His bid for membership rejected. Dr. Melvin Brown joins me now. Good evening to you, sir. Good evening to you. It's interesting. I mean, in 2018, you would have been the first and only black member of the Charleston Rifle Club. Talk to me about what happened and how you learned you were rejected by members.
3: Uh, i try to be as brief as possible, but basically I've known some uh, friends that have been members of the club for close to 10 years. Um, I'm from Charleston, but I was still serving in military service, and I would visit from time to time. We'd go there, bowl, have some beers, and they say, hey, man, you'd love this club. When you come home, you need to join it. And I knew the history of the club, I knew that the history of the club had an exclusive membership, I grew up in that neighborhood. And I decided, not not right now. So years go by, um, I retire from the Navy, I'm back at home, we're there again, bowling, having some drinks. They said, dude, you gotta, you, they tell me, you gotta open your mind, you know, times have changed, the neighborhood's changed, let's do this. I said, okay, let's go ahead and do it, and so I put my application in and well you know there's big snowball effect for different things that happened you know mm-hmm. uh, they froze membership they tried to change the rules when they finally decided when they finally were unsuccessful with that it was my time came up to get voted i went i was presented before the group it was me and uh, and 13 other applicants. Um, we stepped out of the room for the vote. They're kind of talking to us like we're all going to be in because for the most part, it's pretty much assumed you're going to get in. And they come back and call us all back in and then kind of tap me on the shoulder and move you to the side and say, hey, I'm sorry, but you didn't get in. You can stay for the meeting if you want. I said, no, I'm okay. You are the only um, one? I'm going to stop there and see if you had any questions. I, yeah, there was 14 people up that night. I was the only applicant that did not get voted. Okay, in. so that they tried to change the rules. You were the only one who didn't get voted in. One of
2: your friends who, who co-sponsored you called the whole process disgusting and despicable. Is there any doubt in your mind that
3: this is because of racism? Well, I've been trying to stay away from uh, making proclamations about why I didn't get in. You get a chance, before, when your name is submitted, people get a chance to voice the objections. Nobody voiced any objections. Then I didn't get voted in. No one offered an explanation. When I looked down the applicants, I tried to see what, what it was that was different between them and me. Everyone was from all walks of life. Um, some of them were veterans. Some of them were navy physicians, and like I was, but I didn't get in. So one only has to come to one conclusion. So you had been a guest, though, at the club on several occasions before you
2: applied to be a member. Oh yeah. So give me your experience. Well, several
3: occasions. Then
2: yeah. was do you think it was a was it a case of being nice to your face as long as you weren't trying to belong or become a member?
3: Well. Again, I, I, you're talking for. I can't talk for people who voted against because I don't know them. When I would go, I was guest of friends of mine from growing up in Charleston and friends of mine from med school and different people that were members uh, in the neighborhood. So, as far as I knew, I was accepted and having a great time and enjoying my time with my friends. Mm-hmm. But again, I knew the history of the club and it has a huge membership and they can't represent the entire membership.
2: Yeah.
3: But I, I think maybe you might have thought that times have changed, as your friends have said, because during
2: your last military posting in Jacksonville, Florida, I understand that you had been accepted into a nearly all-white yacht club, uh, and it was a good experience, right? right, right? right. So talk, So maybe
3: that is... Yeah. yeah. I'd be lying if I didn't say that gave me momentum. I mean, that happened shortly before I retired and moved back to Charleston. I mean, Charleston's always been... I love my city, and it's always been kind of an island... In a red state. <laughs> and um, I was in Jacksonville, which to me was the deep south. And when I was approached about joining the Florida Yacht Club, I said, oh, heck no, that's not going to happen. But again, friends were saying, no, this is different. I yeah. applied. I got in. So that gave me a little momentum going in. So I thought, well, maybe I need to get my own city a different, you know, look. I've got 10 seconds left. I hate to short shrift. So how do you explain this to your children? Oh, sorry. I know that's a big question, but how do you explain it to your children? I try not to. Push the negative, push the positive. The best way to get to know people better and get over these borders is just to engage, be there, be involved, and just make friends with people. Because that's what's worked for me in the military, and my professional life, just engage and meet people. And they'll formulate, most people will kind of warm, but then there are some who make almost a... A decision before they meet you and you can't change that sometimes the
2: producer gods have granted us a little more time so I'm gonna ask you a, another question if I can okay so do, do you <laughs> believe that this is an attitude of an isolated group of men at this club or do you think there's a wider problem itself in Charleston or maybe beyond
3: in my particular case I think it was a few people who are holding the club hostage but in general I think that this is one of the last bastions to try to, I hate to, I don't want to sound like I'm an advocate, but uh, yes, I am. Um, level the playing field. You know, you, you, we, you have programs like affirmative action, you have corporations with diversity officers. What's really left is parity in public education and also social settings. A lot of my friends get these jobs, but then if you're not able to socialize with everyone, you're kind of left out of the pot. And I think that Overcoming the social barriers, if we're all hanging out after work or outside of work, we get to know each other much better and that makes the, the playing field much more even. And that's the important thing I guess we can take away from this.
0: Okay, so a good doctor in South Carolina tries to join an all white rifle club. How that sound? Nigga must have fell on his head all his life because we know South Carolina is a prisoner's place. He know. He grew up there. So what would possess this nigga to think he was that special to go join these white folks exclusive club. Now, me, myself, I just think it's a nigga with low self-esteem. Because I know if they got some white gun clubs, they got some black gun clubs. Go be with your own people, man. Use your fucking brain, all them PhDs, them doctor degrees you got, nigga, and use your motherfucking brain. Them white folks don't want your ass. And you knew that shit. Stop being stupid okay the next episode you about to hear is a little something called the birth of a white nation i don't know how long i'm gonna let this play but i just wanted y'all to hear some of these facts and some of these things that are being said by this young lady a young white lady with a phd you get what i'm saying i really don't know her name her name is jacqueline something but uh she's on youtube you can google it and just check it out let me know what you think
4: white people did not exist before 1681. Again, white people did not exist on planet Earth until 1681. Number two, any claim that this group called white people, um, any claim that that group is rooted in biology or derived um, from genes or biology or is innate or is from nature is a lie. Third and final point, as a matter of foundational law, actually, let me say it this way, white supremacy has been embedded in the United States of America from its founding as a matter of law. Now, I don't expect you to buy all that, to get all that, to believe all that, at least not now. But my job is to share with you the... um, legal history that proves each of those three claims that I begin with. So let's go, let's get started. We have to begin this conversation in colonial North America, specifically in the colonies, the British colonies of Maryland and Virginia. Both were British colonies and both shared a number of particular characteristics. First, Their economies were rooted in tobacco farming. If you know much about tobacco farming, it requires tremendous human labor. Lots and lots of workers. So those who owned large plantations, um, big landholders, constantly needed laborers to do the work to grow the tobacco. In addition to sharing an economic base, both colonies had an incredible gender imbalance, roughly 10 men for every woman. Now, let's understand a little bit about the folks who constitute the people in these two colonies. Oh, and by the way, let me give you a a year. Uh, We're in the early 1600s, okay? The early part of the 17th century colonial North America. England had, uh, for some bizarre reason that today demographers cannot explain, there was a population boom in England in the early 17th century. So there were lots and lots of poor British people who were on the public doles, who couldn't find a way to make a living, who couldn't feed themselves. So the king in England was quite happy to have them sign a contract of indenture to then go work um, in the British colonies. And that is what happened. Both indentured and enslaved persons, according to historian Edmund Morgan, were sold and traded like cattle. But of course, not all laborers stand equal in terms of their labor agreement or lack thereof. Those who came under a term of indenture worked for a term of years, and presumably this indenture was an agreement that they chose to enter into. The terms of indenture were largely protected by British law although the terms that took form in colonial North America were quite different than those that existed in um, England. For example, in England, indentured servants could marry because that was viewed as the way to produce the next group of workers. In this country, indentured servants were prohibited from marrying, and if women were unfortunate enough to get pregnant during their term of indenture, they added usually about seven to nine years onto their term of indenture, and one year to the father. Slavery, of course, was a status that came with life, work for life. There was neither British law nor international law to prohibit or restrict slavery. What we do know is that at this time period in colonial North America, there were free persons of African descent. Um, We know that landholders um, freed slaves. They did so in wills. They did so by allowing them to purchase their own freedom or the freedom of a family member. The vast majority of workers, laborers, Um, in colonial North America at this time were British men, British workers, the vast majority. Um, There were some women, there were some European laborers from Portuguese, Dutch, um, folks from Ireland and from Scotland are also revealed in the um, records, but the vast majority were British men. There were small numbers of persons of African descent, and there were even smaller numbers of members of native tribes. Um, but in this slide, I'm trying to capture the socioeconomic ladder, and really that ladder should be about as long as this room. Um, the land elite are, in today's parlance, that's the 1%. And the vast majority of folks um, who were in the colonies um, were laborers, Again, they were British, other Europeans, Africans, and members of Native tribes. Here's what I find folks have the most difficult time with. We tend to really struggle with getting a good picture of social life, the social context at this juncture. We're very good at understanding the social relations that exist later, and we'll talk about those in a moment, but pre-Bacon's Rebellion society is something that we generally in this country struggle to grasp. Um, So I'm gonna do my best to paint a broad stroke picture um, of this time period. What we know is that British and African laborers worked, ate, and slept together. Furthermore, the evidence from this period, um, which covers the first three quarters of the 17th century, that the anecdotal evidence reveals that they lived under similar conditions and faced the same, the same opportunities and chances to make it once one was, free of their term of service, whether free of enslavement or free of indenture. So let's review this. British laborers constituted the vast majority of the populations in both Colonial Maryland and Colonial Virginia. All men, of course, because the law of coverture, let me tell you something about that law of coverture. Um, The law of coverture is derived from British common law And it um, structures marriage. And this is how um, Barrister Blackstone famously described the law of coverture. In marriage, the man and the woman become one. And the one is the man. You didn't have the right to retain your own wages. You couldn't um, create estate planning, wills, or trusts without the approval of a man. So all men who were free of indenture or enslavement faced the same opportunities in these colonies as a matter of law. For example, free men of African descent could own servants or slaves, and they did. They could vote, and they did. They could marry persons of the opposite sex. God, and I love that I have to make that qualification now. They could marry persons of the opposite sex regardless of national origin, and they did. In fact, marriages between men of African descent and women primarily of British descent were not uncommon at all. In one county, one half of the free men of African descent were married to a European woman. There was a challenge to these marriages, but it did not come from the masses. It came from elites. And that's what we're gonna talk about next. All right, this little depiction um, is meant to be a depiction of the um, lawmakers in Maryland, colonial Maryland lawmakers. Um, They passed a law in 1664 punishing, and I quote, British and other freeborn women who marry enslaved Negro men. The punishment for entering into these marriages um, was that the woman herself would be enslaved for the her husband's life, and any children they have would be enslaved into their 20s. Hmm, now imagine that you are a plantation owner. That's not a bad deal. I get more property. I like that. And that is exactly what happened. Rather than deter these marriages, which is the express intent of the law of sixteen sixty-four, um, rather than deter them, these marriages were encouraged um, by property owners because that in fact that such a marriage increased their property value. This law, this law of sixteen sixty-four, represents, if not the first, certainly the precursor to anti-miscegenation law. These are laws that punished or prohibited marriage between, notice that white people didn't exist yet in 1664, um, at least as referenced in that law. But most generally speaking, anti-miscegenation law prohibited and punished marriages between a white person and a specific non-white person or persons. Let me be really clear, I read all the time in history books, in academic texts, and I hear, I read, anti-miscegenation law described as prohibiting interracial marriage. That's not correct. For example, a person of, a member of a native tribe could marry a person of Chinese descent. Both were understood as racially distinct. But never did anti-miscegenation law prohibit such kinds of marriages. The only marriages that anti-miscegenation law prohibited were those between a white person and always a person of African descent, and sometimes various other groups. Okay, so just so we're really clear about anti-miscegenation law and its link um, to whiteness. A couple other things to note about anti-miscegenation law. It's not derived from British law. Anytime um, we look at law and study history and you see a break from British common law, you always want to pay attention because it tells us something about the needs and desires of those who wielded power um, in the colonial context. So anti-miscegenation law was one of these laws. They were passed colony by colony and then state by state. It's a really important area of law um, for a number of reasons. Um, But for our purpose this morning, is because it's where this human category called white first appears on planet Earth the first time. In addition, anti-miscegenation law is important because it lasted more than 300 years. These anti-miscegenation laws literally shaped the faces of this group of more than 2,000 X number of people that I'm looking at today. The Maryland legislature... Um, sought to correct for the encouragement of marriages that they described in that previous law of 1664 as, quote, a disgrace, unquote, to the British people, as an indication that the, quote, British or freeborn woman must be forgetful of her status as free, end quote. So they passed the law of 1681, and in this law, It made it illegal for British and other white women from marrying a Negro slave. And furthermore, the law punished any landholder who encouraged the marriages and any religious authority who performed it. This law equals the invention of the human category white. Did these group of laborers, some of whom were from Portugal, some um, from Holland, some from Ireland, Scotland, did, did they have a little genetic transformation that occurred right after the General Assembly in Maryland met, creating a genetic sludge that we can now call white? Virginia passed its first anti miscegenation law in 1691. In Virginia, the Law prohibited both white men and white women from marrying um, African, um, uh, pardon me, a person of African descent or a member of a native tribe. Um, But lest I leave you thinking that gender equality um, was being created in this law, let me quickly dispel that. Studies um, of antebellum courts reveal that, in fact, Anti-miscegenation law um, was that, at least in the language of the law, prohibited these marriages for white men and white women. But here's what we know from antebellum court cases. Um, We know that plenty of white men married and or engaged in intimate sexual relations um, with prohibited women. However, very rarely were they brought to court and punished under the anti-miscegenation law, very rarely. So here, pay attention to this. This law, in its enforcement, is largely focused on on controlling the relationality and the sexuality of white women and non-white men. Furthermore, think about um, the enforcement practices that come out of this um, particular law. What, what's the result? Who becomes more available for who? We see a, a further step in locating patriarchal power squarely among and within white men. We've talked about the law of 1664 and the amendment to that law in 1681. And we've noted that the key difference between those two is the reference to the group who's um, of concern. The language has shifted from British and other freeborn to British and other white women um, in that particular law. So the question becomes, well, what the heck happened between 1664 and 1681? And the answer is Bacon's Rebellion. This was a re- a massive revolt in the colony of Virginia that lasted more than a year. Let's talk. Let me give some background um, of the seeds of this rebellion. What helped give rise um, to this violent outburst? Those who were enslaved. Um, I don't think it's hard to imagine were by definition of their status disgruntled laborers. And remember that pool of readily available workers from England who were. Pro- this was a, re- a massive revolt in the colony of Virginia that lasted more than a year. Let's talk, let me give some background um, of the seeds of this rebellion, what helped give rise um, to this violent outburst. Those who were enslaved, um, I don't think it's hard to imagine, were by definition of their status disgruntled laborers. And remember that pool of readily available workers from England who were poor? Um, and happily sent off in the guts of ships, well, they dried up. That population surge um, ended and there was no longer a pool of laborers from um, Britain available to handle the work on the um, plantations in the colonies. The result is they began to impose harsher punishments on indentured servants who were already here so that relatively minor infractions would result in significant extensions to their years of service. Those who completed their term of indenture or who were released from their status as enslaved were frustrated. They were frustrated because the King of England gave almost all of the farmable land to his buddies. and even if they could find land to grow tobacco on, prices dropped and taxes went up. So land and other opportunities um, became much more limited. So this guy, Nathaniel Bacon, the guy pointing his arm, um, he didn't have to search very far for disgruntled laborers. Both those who were enslaved or indentured faced worse treatment, and those freed faced less ability to make a future for themselves. Persons of European and African descent fought um, in the first phase of Bacon's Rebellion against members of native tribes, and then in the second phase of Bacon's Rebellion against the British ruling elite. Mm -hmm. Nathaniel Bacon ultimately died from wounds that he received in a battle, and England sent troops um, into the colony and that eventually quashed the rebellion. But not without having made a significant impression upon those who wielded authority and were threatened by this rebellion. Remember, this rebellion lasted over a year, and records from lawmakers in Virginia to the Legal Oversight Authority in England revealed that over 30% of the population were in support um, of the rebellion. Here were the lessons From Bacon's Rebellion. A united labor force is a threat to the form of capitalism taking hold within the colonies. Virginia lawmakers wrote letters to the Oversight Authority in um, London explaining that they intended to pursue a divide-and-conquer strategy in order to prevent future rebellion. It's only after Bacon's Rebellion that we see the emergence of white people as a group of humanity. Let's think about this for a minute. 1681, some lawmakers invent a new label for a group of people. Imagine, if you will, just for a second, for fun here, that I'm a lawmaker and I just pass a law claiming that three quarters of you in this room are crunchies. Okay? So three quarters of you are crunchies, and the other quarter of you are not. Who gives a damn? Who would care? Some silly lawmaker came up with a label for you. It's really unlikely that it would mean much. But let's say I follow it with this those who are crunchies you can pay no more than $25 a night for that hotel. No more. Those who are crunchies are the first to come into any room at this conference and the first to leave. The first in line at the bathroom, at lunch, at any other line that forms, and the first to get to leave. And that these privileges and advantages that come by virtue of this label that I asserted upon you as a lawmaker continues when you walk out these doors. That it shapes how you are treated and what you get to do for years and years to come. Imagine you're one of the Crunchies. Imagine how you might start to feel. Wow, I must be special. Imagine you're not a crunchy. Wow, what's wrong with me? This is not fair. Let's return to the divide and conquer strategy. Laborers prior and through Bacon's rebellion were united, they lived the same darn lives. They faced the same opportunities, rights, and privileges once they were freed from enslavement or free from indenture. That's about to change. A slew of laws were passed in the decades after Bacon's rebellion and continued to get passed into the first quarter of the next century. The first slew of laws included the prohibition of free blacks from holding public office, the prohibition of blacks and native tribal members from marrying whites, the requirement that whites, upon completion of their terms of service, be paid goods, including guns and gunpowder, a prohibition of free blacks possessing a weapon. We're going to come back to that. The prohibition of blacks testifying against whites. These laws began to give different meaning to these labels that prior to this moment just referenced where your nation of origin was. Not anymore. I wanna return quickly to the law that prohibited free blacks from possessing a weapon. What this law did was essentially strip free black men of their ability to hold patriarchal power. Because look, under the law of coverture, here's how things worked. Men were in control, um, controlled women, um, their spouse controlled their children and had legal authority to do so, including severe beatings, um, all... All financial assets and land, the man had the control, but the exchange was that in exchange for that authority, he protects. That's the trade-off for patriarchal power, stripped, made impossible um, by virtue of this law. And then let's look at this law that prohibited blacks from testifying against whites. We, we will see that throughout U.S. history. Mexicans prohibited from testifying against whites, Chinese prohibited from testifying against whites, and then it just becomes mongrels, the label, um, to include persons of Af- Japanese descent and the like. Um, so that's a, a law that we see throughout U.S. history. When you look at these laws, What's the message to white people? Each one of these laws has a message to this new group of people called white folks, on the one hand, and a message to those who it denies or restricts on the other, each one of them. This package of laws, first passed after Bacon's rebellion, did something extraordinary. Let's imagine. that that light up there represents the land-holding elite, the 1%, and and this represents the socioeconomic ladder in in the colony, okay? And so this hand over here represents this new group of laborers called white ones, and this hand over here represents um, laborers of African descent and members of native tribes. Before Bacon's Rebellion and through it, these laborers had the same lives, faced the same opportunities, and that changed. But when you look at these laws that passed that created this change, it divided these, created different meaning for this group versus this group. But it didn't do a whole lot to lift the economic status of white people closer to that of the white elites. Very little movement up. What it did do was it plummeted the bottom, created a new bottom to colonial society, and shoved persons of African descent and made members of native tribes there. So let's look at this group of humanity called white people. We learn from this history that white people were built upon the idea that British had of themselves as white, as Christian, as freeborn, as deserving of rights and privileges from which others can be denied. To this day, white people have not been defined as a matter of law. To this day, this history teaches us that white is the tool by which laborers were divided. Those who shared the same living conditions, the same opportunities, now experience ourselves as more connected with Paris Hilton than with our African American neighbor. Even though our economic status is far more similar to that neighbor than to the lives of the 1%. But. Not only did this new organization of society create a new bottom to it, it created a link that heretofore had not existed that connected this new group of laborers called white people with the elite. And what was that connection? This shared status called white embedded with the presumption of its superiority. The other thing to note about the invention of white people and the meaning of white that this history reveals is that white constituted the center of patriarchal power. And we see that most clearly through anti-miscegenation law and specifically through its enforcement. We're gonna move from the 17th century into the 18th century. The American Revolution has taken place and the congress of the united first congress of the united states of america will meet for the first time and when they meet they will establish laws regarding citizenship in this new country this is the building actually in new york where the first congress met here are the men who represented the first congress these laws regarding citizenship include an area of law called naturalization law. Naturalization law provides the process by which one who is not born in a country can become a citizen. The first Congress of the United States determined 1790 that in order to become a naturalized citizen...
0: So there you have it, folks. Now we kind of get an idea of how white supremacy got its roots. What was the starting point, you know? The Divide and Conquer Strategy. This is Shock of the Guard, and I hope that skit, or that bit of information, was informative. And uh, basically, on to the next subject. So, today's last topic will be spoke on about the update for the killer of James Byrd Jr. in Jasper, Texas 20 years ago. Listen to this article, and um, I'll get my commentary.
1: Execution date set for Texas inmate convicted in 1998 dragging death of black man by Tanasia Kenny, December 24, 20,180,810. An April execution date looms for a white Texas man condemned for the 1998 dragging death of James Byrd Jr. John William King faces lethal injection on April 24, 2019, for the grisly murder committed in the East Texas city of Jasper 20 years ago. King was one of three men convicted in Byrd's June 1998 death during which the African-American man's body was chained to the back of a truck and dragged down a road. John William King was one of the three white men charged and convicted for tying James Burt Jr.'s body to a truck and dragging it down the road, image courtesy of AP. District Judge Craig Mixon signed the execution order on Friday, December 21st, the Associated Press reported. In February. The 5th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals rejected King's appeal, arguing that liars had insufficiently presented his case and that only a few pieces of circumstantial evidence linked him to the scene of a fight that led to Bird being chained to the truck by his ankles and dragged. In October, the U.S. Supreme Court refused to hear King's appeal, effectively sealing his fate. The shocking murder prompted Texas to pass its own hate crime law in 2001.
0: So, it took 20 years for James Bird family to get justice. So what that tell you, 20 years. All I got to say is that today it is better late than never and uh fuck them in their ass, cracker ass motherfucker. And I would like to leave you with another excerpt because this podcast was completed on Christmas. And it's just how I feel. You know what I'm saying? And um enjoy y'all pagan holidays and um until next episode. Thank y'all. Whoa, nah, you. Whoa, now you hear me? Look, check this out. Like, I see a lot of y'all on my timeline every day, all day throughout the year. I did not know this many of y'all celebrated Christmas who throughout the year Me talking that shit about everybody else in the community. I didn't. I see y'all talking a lot of shit about the people in the community all year round by how they bind into the system and they sleep and uneducated, but I did not know this many of y'all still celebrated Jesus' fake birthday. I didn't. I didn't know y'all celebrated I can see y'all saying, well, I'm not
3: celebrating And I'm just going home to be with family.
0: That's one thing, but when you start making a post, you buy the Christmas tree, you got the Merry Christmas hashtags, you got Merry Christmas on your fucking picture, and you and your family dressed up. You celebrating this shit, like, miss me with the bullshit. You are celebrating this shit. Yes, you, you, you. Yeah. This has been another episode of the Black Perspective Podcast. I am Shocker the God. Until next time, people.